Hi, this is Jenna. And this is Kelly. And you're listening to ODFM. This episode is One Depravity from Murder. Warning, this episode contains graphic descriptions of grisly events. This episode is not recommended for anyone under 13 years of age. This is a rough one. You guys are going to love this. All right. (laughs) This is going to be bad. You're going to love it. (laughs) We're going to love this shit. So I'm going to take you to the place. It's January of 1984. I'm there. I feel that You feel it? It's kind of cold. (laughs) Right. Big hair is in. 1984. I want to say then I was in third grade. Mm -hmm. I probably didn't have my big hair yet. Other people did. I had that feathered bang look that was so fly. That's hot. Yeah. Feathered bang and gigantic glasses that were like almost the full size of my face. (laughs) (laughs) That is a look. I'm picturing it now. I was, I was hideous. Okay. So (laughs) I will have to find a picture. Okay. For a 12-day period, the Colorado cities of Aurora and Lakewood were terrorized by what I think of as the most horrifying of all types of killers. A man who attacked strangers randomly, raped the women and children before bludgeoning them to death. Holy crap. I know. I thought you were going to stop right there. The worst kind of killer, a man. (laughs) And then there was like a pause. And I was like, yeah, man. (laughs) Yeah, that is horrifying. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. I know. And this is Aurora, Colorado, not Aurora, Illinois, where I live. Right. So known as the Colorado Hammer Murders, the crime spree began in Aurora on the morning of January 4th of 1984. At around 2 a.m., an intruder entered the house of a couple through an unlocked door. Like, why is your door unlocked, dude? The couple, James and Kim Hobenschild, I don't know. James and Kim had only been married for a couple of years at this point, and they were young. James was not even 25 at this time. The attacker bludgeoned the couple with a hammer and left them for dead. I know. Just come on in. Come on in. Hit people Uh, and leave. Lock your doors. No. By some miracle, both Kim and James survived the assault, but James had a fractured skull and Kim had a concussion. They survived? They survived. He just came in and freaking hit the hell out of him and left it's so bizarre but with no leads and just a foggy physical description from kim police didn't have anything to go on god i know (sighs) police found footprints in the snow leading to and from other homes in the same area making it seem like he was looking for an easy way into any home just to take an opportunity to kill oh my god okay that's horrifying lock your doors lock your doors and And windows if you're you know, trying to be a perpetrator, maybe don't go when it's snowy. Just the thought. Yeah. I just <laughs> you're gonna leave. You're gonna leave some you're some evidence. Footprints. I just you know. Okay, it's a good point. Almost six days later, on the 9th of January of 1984, on a Monday evening, the sky had just turned dark. So that probably means what, like 3 p.m. Right. <laughs> right. It was like midday. Stupid daylight savings. <laughs> Uh, but 28-year-old Donna Dixon, a flight attendant who just got off her shift and went to run errands, was happy to be home. She was super excited for the next day when her boyfriend, Ronald Holm, who was a pilot, would also right. be home. So she was super stoked. She, things were getting back to normal. They were right, going to be okay. together. Donna pulls into her driveway, hit the button to raise her garage door, and pulled her car in. She turned behind her 
to grab her flight attendant's uniform from the back seat and then turned to exit her car. Suddenly, an intense blow to her left temple forced her head into the steering wheel. Oh! The world faded away as she began to lose consciousness and she slumped into the passenger seat. Oh my God. Mm. Okay. After hitting her with a hammer, the assailant tossed it into the seat, the passenger seat, and began dragging her limp body from the vehicle. He tore her clothes off her, letting him fall anywhere he tossed them in the garage. Then he viciously raped her on the cold concrete floor. Oh my God. You know, Donna awoke on the garage floor naked and confused. She luckily awoke up. Oh, she had no yeah. memory of what had happened and oh. apparently didn't feel any pain. She was terrible. She was cold. frozen. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. So cold and so much so that she was so completely numb that she went inside. She was able to get onto her feet and stumble inside where she put herself to bed. Her what? brain was muddled from the punishment. Oh my yeah. gosh. She didn't. She, she was just, just was so like, I got to get inside. I got to get yeah. warm. Yeah, she just couldn't think because she had been hit so hard. At around 8 p.m. the next night after the attack, on January 10th, Ron, her boyfriend, arrived at their home. Oh, my God. Upon entering the garage, he was distressed at the scene he walked in on. Donna's clothing, Uh yeah, Donna's clothing was haphazardly strewn about the garage along with her purse and the mail. The most disturbing sight was the blood near the entry door. Ron ran into the house and found Donna lying on their now blood-soaked bed. She was naked, I know, curled up into a ball in the fetal position, and she could only groan in response to him. Oh, my God. He discovered a gaping hole on the left side of her skull, and he quickly called 911. Oh, my God. I know. It's giving me chills. I have such chills right now. Donna was rushed to the hospital while police secured the scene. They found the large hammer the assailant had left on the seat of the car. He didn't take it with him. Dude, come on. I know. (laughs) They dusted it for prints, but none were found. The garage was like a horror movie. Blood was everywhere. It was splattered all over the car, and they noticed the strewn clothing in her purse, which they did discover was missing some money, but nothing else seemed out of place in the home. So He remembered to look in her wallet, but he couldn't take his hammer. (laughs) <laughs> he forgot that he was so Come excited on. for a couple of bucks <laughs> he was like woohoo five dollars <laughs> oh no <laughs> I oh, right. so donna had to have several operations to fix the damage the attacker had done despite the severity of the oh, attack God, and the incredible amount of blood loss doctors and nurses were able to save her in fact because she had spent so many hours naked on the cold concrete floor in freezing temperatures the cold had actually kept her from bleeding to death so it was actually a good Holy thing she was crap. left there. I know. Isn't that crazy? Oh it was almost God. like it slowed the- Preserved her yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Slowed the whole process down. Slowed yeah. her blood flow. Yeah. Slowed her heart. Holy crap. I know. Insane. Ron, her boyfriend, stayed by her hospital bed day and night. He was certainly acting the caring, attentive boyfriend, but his biggest fear was that upon hearing she survived, the attacker might return. So he was afraid to leave her alone. <gasps> Isn't that sweet? Oh, God, I wouldn't I have thought of that. I know. Finish the jump. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. Her injuries were so severe that when she awoke, she had the mental capabilities of a two-year-old. She had to relearn everything, including how to talk. <sighs> and she couldn't speak a full sentence for nearly six months after the attack. <sighs> oh, my God. In May of 1984, just a few months after the assault and before she had come to a full recovery, Ron 
decided to marry her. Oh. I know. He wanted to show Donna that he'd be there for better or worse, no matter what. Oh, it makes me almost cry. It was like, oh. I know. <clears throat> I know. That's, wow. And as for the information I gathered, they're still married to this day. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. I have to say something, like, I have chills right now, but one of the things, like, I, I thought of was, so these first two attacks happened in January, in the mm-hmm. middle of winter, there was snow and all this. Yeah. And I mean, I always lock my doors and stuff like that. Like I always keep them locked. And right. But, you know, one of the things I think about is like when it's really bitterly cold out is I was like, no one's gonna be trying to break in now. Who's that's true. Right. That's what I think about is like, if I hear a weird noise or whatever, I'm like, no one's, you know, (laughs) what dumbass is out in that cold. Right. Yeah. Or I'm like, damn, if you want to take like my TV that bad, <laughs> you need to go out in this weather. I mean, <laughs> maybe you, but maybe you earned it. Yeah. But you just, you just blew that theory out of the water and yeah. now I have the chills and, and I can't you, get rid of them. <laughs> yeah. Now you have to have your doors locked all the time. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. So before. Oh God. I know. I can't stop. Are you ready? Yeah. I've got more. I, oh God. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Hit me. <laughs> you don't say that. <laughs> With this is the hammer <laughs> killing. Right. Oh shit! Right. Okay. Sorry. Um. Go ahead, please. <laughs> yes. Uh, before Donna had even been found, another attack had happened 26 miles away in the city of Lakewood. Holy crap! I know this dude was on a roll. 50-year-old Patricia Louise Smith had only been living in Lakewood a little over three months. She had left in Nebraska with her daughter, who had recently divorced. Patricia's husband stayed behind in Nebraska. I'm not sure why they didn't say anything about that, but she said she missed him. I think she moved there just to help her daughter, who had since she had just recently divorced. She loved being with her daughter and her two grandbabies in Lakewood, and the four of them lived in a townhome in a nice area with crisp, clean air, which is now a thing of the past, with mountains spiring into the sky at the west. There's no clean air there now. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's sad. There's too many people. So on January 10th of 1984, Patricia began her day like always, dropping her daughter off at her job and then the grandkids at school. And later that afternoon, however, the ever reliable Patricia failed to pick up the family. So I guess she usually went to pick up her daughter and the grandkids. So this is the middle of the day. Middle of the day, Jen. I know. All your theories are out the window. (laughs) In the middle of the night. When it's nice yeah. weather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's and when not, you, you know, middle of the day, but January. So it could have been dark out. It, could, it totally could have been. Probably felt like dusk. night. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was at dusk at two. Right. Uh, so the family ended up getting a ride from someone else. Uh, but when they arrived home, Patricia's car was there and the TV looked beyond in the upstairs bedroom. Oh, boy. It's a bad sign. Yeah. When the family entered the home, the scene inside Oh, was one the grandkids would never forget. Oh, they I, went in. They went Shit. in. The babies okay. went Okay. There on the floor <laughs> next to the couch, merely feet away from the front door, was the deliberately posed body of Patricia. Posed with her arms across her chest, kind of like put in a casket type of thing. A vampire? <laughs> oh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was picturing like a vampire. No. Like, yes. Yeah. Like a vampire? Yeah. <laughs> like a vampire. No. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why. okay yes but here's where i thought we should take a break and when we return from the break we'll find out the horror that faced patricia's daughter and kids when they found her (laughs) 
So I know we've been telling you guys for a while about the shop in Northern Colorado called Thistle. It's also online and you guys, there's so much stuff that's about to launch before the holidays. Yes, I am super thankful for the guy section with so many unique finds. The men in my life are so difficult to buy for. I always find something they love at Thistle. Me too. There's literally something for everyone, even kiddos. And with the holidays just around the corner, now is the time to snatch up goodies before they're gone. Thistle loves ODFM so much that they are offering our listeners 10% off their purchase when using the code ODFM at checkout. That's at thistlewellington.com. That's T-H-I-S-T-L-E-W-E-L-L-I-N-G-T-O-N.com. Or pop by in person in downtown Wellington, Colorado. Okay. Now that we're back, you ready to hear about poor Patricia? No, I don't I think know. I am, but go ahead. <laughs> <I'm> too bad. <laughs> I don't think I'm ready. I'm, I'm getting it, giving it to you anyway. All right. That's what she said. <laughs> Thanks, Michael Scott. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Patricia had been laid flat down with her arms crossed over her chest like a vampire. Like a vampire. Says, mm-hmm. Yes. Beneath her. Oh, and this reminds me of you too. What? I know. Okay, why? <laughs> <laughs> because. Okay. Beneath her was a neatly folded Winnie the Pooh comforter. Oh, God. Because oh. you love Winnie the Pooh. Oh, well, I know. Why do you have to drag Pooh into this? I know. Oh. The comforter and the floor around it was soaked in blood. Dude. They ruined Pooh too. Ruined it. I know. These poor children can never enjoy Winnie the Pooh anymore. I bet you're right, actually. That's super sad. Patricia had on her sweater and her boots, but her jeans were pulled down. Next to her was, can you guess? Tigger? No. Yeah. A hammer. But, you know, Tigger. But he just. A hammer. He he just just has all this money to blow on hammers. He's like, I have a giant hammer collection. (laughs) He went to Costco and got like the 12 pack. <laughs> the what bulk. the hell? <laughs> the <laughs> bulk pack of hammers. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. So the hammer, of course, was later determined to be the murder weapon. Police examined the scene and put together the events leading to her demise. She had been killed sometime between 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. She had stopped so by when dusk. 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 Yes. <laughs> it was getting dark. Right. <laughs> she oh, had God, stopped by Wendy's. Three. I know. See, you're not safe during the day Dude, either. she stopped by Wendy. Her last meal was Wendy's. Yeah, doesn't that suck? That sucks. Squirt I hope she burger. at least got a Frosty. I hope she didn't <laughs> like, I hope she wasn't like, oh, I should really, I should get a salad. I should at least get a salad. I, should, I hope I she went. Healthy. Yeah, hopefully she went full fat, full. Right? God. Yeah. Gluttonous yumminess. It's depressing. I know. <laughs> okay. So she had stopped by Wendy's, came home to eat that lunch. She left the garage door open and had probably left the front door unlocked after entering because it's daytime Shit. in the winter. Because it's daytime. I leave my garage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Damn it. I know. She'd gone upstairs, removed her wig, as one does. What? So she didn't get Wendy's on it? I, I don't know. Then she turned the TV on. Ooh, I mean, no, I don't know. Sorry. I'm thinking about, I mean, like, you know, sometimes if I'm eating something messy, I'll throw my hair back in a ponytail. I right. get it. But yeah. So I guess it's easier to just just take off the take wig. it off if you can. Yeah, I, okay, yeah. maybe it was hot. Cool. I don't know. <clears throat> All right. No, it was January. <laughs> <laughs> her head was hot. Everything. Her else head, was oh, her cold. head was hot. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> no signs of forced entry were found, so it's believed the killer entered through the unlocked door. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Robbery didn't seem to be the motive as only the jewelry that Patricia had on her physical body was missing, but nothing else. He just needed enough to cover the next hammer. <laughs> Good point. Maybe that's what <laughs> right? he's like, yeah, I just need another Shit. hammer. I don't want to be greedy. Right. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> okay. But the house seemed to be in order except for Patricia's purse, which had been turned out with all the contents thrown about like he did with the last person. He just likes throwing just- purses Grabbing some cash, looking for cash or whatever, Maybe. I, you know, I guess. But she had just used the last of hers on Wendy's. Yeah, she had gotten Wendy's. So, which is why she went to Wendy's. She only had so much cash uh, on her. I bet okay, you're right. It's she all had, coming together now. She had quarters and that was it. Police were unable to pull any fingerprints or any other usable evidence that they were, were aware of at that time. But they did collect whatever they could find in case of technological advances in the future. Smart copies. I love that they did that just in yes. case. Hey, just in case we get smarter yes. in the future. <laughs> And we can do something with this. Yeah. I mean, I'm so thrilled that they do that because how would you know? Like, hey, we're going to keep this in case we can do something with it. But who would have known you could have done something? You done it all. You could have done something. Right. (laughs) Right. 26 miles away from the previous incident, back in Aurora again, where the first incident occurred, the Bennett family was settling into their new home. They had recently relocated to their home at around Thanksgiving from a a few miles away and were happy with their quiet new neighborhood. They lived in a cul-de-sac where most of the houses had recently been finished and were up for sale. Bruce Bennett was just 27 years old and had previously worked on a high-tech sonar equipment in the Navy in Pearl Harbor. So he had been in Hawaii. At this time in his life, though, he worked at a family-owned furniture store and was taking college classes to become an air traffic controller. How the hell do they have money to buy a new house? Good point. Maybe, well, maybe the Navy, I don't know. Okay. He's still getting benefits and yeah, who knows? Okay. I was just like, I want to know the secrets, you know? Yeah. Aurora is a cheaper area too, still to this day. So maybe it was really cheap. Okay. All right. So Bruce's wife, Deborah, who was 26, had married Bruce before his Navy deployment. And she was, she also worked at that same furniture store as her husband. And she was also raising their two children, Melissa, who was seven and Vanessa, who was just three. On Sunday, January 15th of 1984, the family gathered at the Bennett's home to have a party for Melissa's birthday, who was going to turn eight the following Tuesday. The last guests left at about 9 p.m., after which Bruce noticed the garage door was still open. Oh, boy. I know. He mentioned to Deborah that he wanted to make a last trip to the store before going to bed, so they left the garage door open for that trip since he would be leaving soon. Sometime between 9 p.m. and 10 a.m., and unexpected visitor entered the family's home. At some point, Bruce had been alerted to the intruder's entrance into the house, as was evidenced by a struggle that took place. Bruce and the trespasser must have fought up and down the stairwell, and at some point, Bruce was struck with several blows by a hammer. He did go buy another hammer with that jewelry. You were right. (sighs) He's just not into reusing hammers. He's just like, nope, I need a fresh one every time. (laughs) Every time. Fresh. fresh. Otherwise, they get dull. You just... Right. Yeah, you can't get the same kind of effect. Oh, God. Even after having been struck repeatedly and having sustained major injuries, Bruce continued his fight for his life and that of his young family. It seems he even dragged himself up the stairs after the assailant believed he was unconscious or dead. Like he still was going after the guy. Oh, God. The intruder grabbed a knife from the kitchen after he discovered Bruce still alive and stabbed Bruce Oh, I thought you were going to say that. Sorry, I thought you were going to say that he left the 
hammer next to Bruce because he seems to like. <laughs> he does saying, like I'm to do that. Leave it there, right? He does. And he's seem like, to like to crap. Do that. I left that downstairs. Okay. All <laughs> this right, time sorry. he so was he grabbed like, a knife. Yeah, this time he was like, "Well, shit, the, the right. hammer hasn't worked yet. I better go get something sharp okay. this time." He stabbed Bruce viciously over his entire upper body, and once Jeez. Bruce, I know. And once Bruce was disabled, the offender used the same knife to slit Bruce's throat from ear to ear. After, oh! I know. Poor Bruce. After putting up the most valiant fight he could, Bruce succumbed and lay silent. <laughs> but the killer didn't leave after that fight. You know, you'd think you'd be kind of tired and you might be like, yeah, right. I killed somebody. I did the thing I wanted to do. He's all, he's all out of hammers. Just he, leave. <laughs> just go. Just but leave. he didn't. Don't, you know. I know. He continued upstairs where he attacked Deborah in her bedroom and there was evidence of a further struggle with her. She was raped and beaten to death with the hammer. So he did pick it back up and use it he more. He did go back and get the hammer. Okay. Yeah. And you'd think at this point, he still would have been satiated, but he wasn't. No. This freak. No, don't go after the babies. No. He entered the oldest daughter, Melissa's room. There, he hit the sleeping girl in the head with a hammer. She was the eight-year-old. As blood, oh, I'm going to cry. As blood flowed from her wounds, the attacker lifted her out of her bed, leaving an imprint from his shirt on her blood-soaked pajamas. He put her on the floor and sexually assaulted her, and she perished from her injuries on the floor of her bedroom. Just two days before her birthday? Yeah. So awful. He then moved on to the youngest in the family, Vanessa, the toddler. Uh, she was only three at the time. Oh, my God, this asshole. Ugh. She was also struck savagely with the hammer. The attack was so vicious that her sh- jaw was shattered and her skull was oh fractured in several areas. And then she was left for dead. Ugh, sorry. I'm, I'm doing a downer one this time. Yeah, right? Whew. Okay. The intruder took Deborah's purse out the front door, dumped the contents into the snow, and threw the knife he'd killed Bruce with. This time, he took the hammer with him. Interesting. Isn't it? I kind of wonder if he was like, well, this one has been used for several. So now it's kind of a keeper. So now it's okay to use it again. I, yeah. yeah what I is that? Um, Freaking freak. Oh my God. Okay. <sighs> yeah. That was a rough one. Okay. Babies. I can't handle baby shit. No. All right. Mm-mm. When the Bennett's didn't show up for work at the furniture store on Monday, a coworker called Bruce. She didn't hear back or anything. So she immediately called Bruce's mother who went to the house to check on them. I know, knowing they wouldn't skip work without at least a phone call. When she arrived, the garage door was still open. Constance, this grandma, entered the home and called the police immediately upon seeing the grisly scene. Oh, God. I hope she didn't get very far before she called the police. I know. I hope she just saw one. Yeah. I mean, still, it was her son, but... Right, but hopefully she didn't see the babies. Police swarmed the scene and checked at each victim one by one, Family members were declared deceased. When they reached Vanessa, the little toddler, three-year-old, they found her wedged between the bed and a wall. She was choking on fragments of her jawbone and desperately clinging to life. So she was still alive. She was still alive? She was frantically transported to a hospital and her grandma Constance went on watch by her bedside. Doctors and nurses worked feverishly to save her life and she went through multiple surgeries. She pulled through and lived. I know, thank goodness. But she would go on to suffer from permanent physiological effects from the attack. But it gives you an idea of the... The The brutality, the... the, 
a deviance of this guy. I mean, right. The, the no respect for life or not oh at my, all. If you tell me that he's not caught at the end of this story, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> I'm just saying. You're going to be on a destruction and yourself mm-hmm. of finding this asshole. I know. Right. And the backyard of the Bennett home was the only one without a fence in that area. And it backed up to a somewhat dark and lonely stretch of road. Other attacks had happened off this main road. And so it's thought the assailant could have entered that area from that point. Yeah, I would have had a fence. Yeah. It's like (laughs) electric, electric fence. We're electrifying the hell out of this thing. Police believed the attacker brought his own weapon as none of the tools of the home seemed to have been disturbed. So again, have they not realized that these are all the same guy yet? Oh my god, the hammers! I know. Oh my god, they were happening. Brand of hammer? Yeah. Good question. Oh my god! I just wonder if it was the same. Did he? It was just different hammers, or like I said, did he get like a Costco Costco like twelve pack? And (laughs) you know, I don't know. Okay. Okay. Discount. God, Uh, we're only like halfway through January. Good God! I know we haven't gotten anywhere. Donna and the Bennett cases were quickly connected. So there you go. Thank God. Yeah. Okay. And some sources say they're able to do so with the matching of shoe prints at the scenes. Because it was snow. <laughs> there was snow. Because there was snow. Uh, don't kill in the snow. Right. God. So we need another break. So after this break, I- I'll tell you about evidence and the developments in the case. So Ooh. investigators had a difficult job ahead of them in discovering who the culprit was. Uh, forensics showed that the hammers used in each case was different. You had <gasps> that question. So he didn't get the bolt pack. <laughs> oh, he did not. No. Interesting. It mm, is mm. interesting. There weren't any usable fingerprints or other apparent evidence. However, the technology would soon change and they did keep evidence. That's good. You know what? He was probably wearing gloves because it was January. That's true. Good point. So it no might not have been right. It might not have been gloves for the the reason of fingerprints, but because it was so cold outside. <laughs> Good just point. Say. He was just taking care of himself. Right. So fast forward to two thousand two. Whoa! I know. I know. I'm taking you forward in time. So that's it, it. All of a sudden, it's just like it over like a two week period, and then it just a little bit. There, there's Ooh. more to the story coming up. Yeah. A profile was gathered from DNA at the Bennett murder scene. So they went back and rechecked this. They had the DNA of the offender, but no one on file they could match it to. Then, fast forward to 2010, 2010, investigators compared that DNA profile with the DNA from the Patricia Smith murder. I don't know why it took them so long to compare those two. Interesting. Okay. But it was a match. And that proved that the same person had killed both. All of them, I guess. In 2015, leaked information gave up an important clue at the Bennett murder scene. I mentioned earlier that um, when the murderer had lifted the little eight-year-old Melissa off her bed, he'd left an imprint of a shirt in the blood. So two different crime labs assessed the fuzzy imprint, and it was an imprint of letters. And both labs, so this is frustrating, but both labs came up with different results. One lab thought the letters spelled out R-I-C-H-R, like Richard, but without the D. Like okay. it had gotten cut off. The other lab felt that letters said P-E-T-A-W space what? C, Peta. That's, that's, that's not even a word. That's not even a word. <laughs> the public buzzed about the information and like armchair detectives online were all trying to figure things out. Yeah. And some were saying like, you know, trying to look up Richards who had done similar crimes. And then they were trying to look up 
Pata, um, I guess there's Pata Canada. And so Pata Space C could have been, so they were all trying to come up with something, but I'm trying to picture how words would have been imprinted like shirt. Like it was a tag or something. Like if I could see Richard, like if he worked like at a, um, Mm. What do you call it? Like at a gas station or something? How yeah. they have or, or um, um had a, a tag name tag a tag right where they have it. It's like stitched or something. Yeah. Their name like that. I could see Pata. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. And I was like, could that have been reversed? Well, obviously it would have been reversed. Right. It would have been. I know. Interesting. Crazy. Oh, but nothing concrete developed from those lab results. So damn. But this is so technology nerdy fun. Okay. okay, this is I like the stuff we'll love. Detective Steve Connor decided to use any and all technology at his, at his disposal to see if the DNA could somehow be traced to the perpetrator by some other means than simply having existing records on hand. One okay. of these techniques used was an imaging tool by Parabon Nanolabs, which analyzes the DNA to produce an approximation of what the offender could have looked like at the time of the crimes, and it also did an age progression. Yeah, what freaking amazing. I know. I didn't know that was a thing. Yes. What? They can even tell like hair color. I remember um, reading about this. They can predict hair color, eye color, features like if you'd have a butt chin, a chin butt, all those types of things. <laughs> <laughs> He's got an ass on his face. We should be able to find him. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. That was so good. What an ass face. <laughs> Oh, God. (laughs) I can't stop laughing. Another technique used was DNA genealogy, where the DNA was put into a database like Mm -hmm. Ancestry or 23andMe, and their relatives Mm -hmm. of this DNA holder were identified. And Colleen Fitzpatrick, a well-known DNA genealogist, came up with the possible last name of Ewing for the offender. This is also how like the Golden State Killer. Yes, I knew you were going to say Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's it's exactly 1984. what. It's Dallas 1984. <laughs> Ewing. Oh my God, yes. Who shot JR? <laughs> it's true. <Sorry. laughs> that's so funny because that's the exact thought that went through my head too. <laughs> it's like, oh, Dallas. Okay. So, this DNA genealogy is also how the Golden State Killer was recently found. <gasps> that's right. Yes. Oh gosh, that's right. That's so, right. And, um, like our first, was it the first episode that I did? What's his name? Bruce Lindahl. Oh, yeah, you're right. Right? Yep, that yep. was just, yeah, that was oh, a cold case amazing. and that's how they got it. I love that shit. That's how I found out that I shared so many um, <laughs> addresses. residences with him. Right, addresses. <laughs> he lived in three separate towns that I also lived mm. in. And that's not creepy at all. No. Uh, well, hopefully <laughs> you don't find out you're related. That's not funny. (laughs) Oh, my God. Genealogy. Arizona criminal records. So we're going kind of back back in time again. Okay. The weeks after those first two weeks in Colorado. Arizona criminal records showed that Ewing left Colorado. A man named Ewing left Colorado. A man named Ewing. Within days after the hammer attack on the Bennetts. His name was Alex Ewing. Twelve days later, Ewing picked up a 25-pound granite slab, entered an unlocked door to a Kingman, Arizona home. He carried the granite slab into a bedroom, immediately began pummeling the man that lived there in the head. I know, this dude. That might go down as the oddest murder weapon 
that wasn't like a found object in the area. Yeah. Like he brought a piece of granite yeah. with him. <laughs> I think possibly outside the home. And he's like, oh, I forgot my hammer. I'll do. just grab this piece of granite. <laughs> what bizarre? Are, I'm, I'm just trying to picture this. It's like the weirdest. I know. Okay. This dude's whack. Also, when you say granite like that, you're probably, it's probably a stone, but I'm picturing yeah. like countertop. Oh, <laughs> it's a beautiful <laughs> chunk. Right. right. Exactly. This is a like... nice slice. I might take this home <laughs> with me. Maybe I okay, can sorry. make something out of it. Right. Exactly. Oh, God. So the man who had been hit, he survived, even though he required 100 stitches to close his head wounds. That's a lot of freaking stitches. Damn. Around 7 a.m. the next morning, a Kingman police officer stopped a man on the highway on-ramp and asked to see the soles of his shoes. They're just stopping random people and saying, (laughs) can I look at your shoes? I think I wonder if the guy had a general description of this okay. Alex Ewing and was like, this is kind of what he looks like. And maybe the cop was Was there a piece attention. of countertop in the passenger seat? <laughs> he was, <laughs> he's walking. So he's probably just carrying That's it. so weird. Okay. All right. Okay. So he looks at the- Oh, he wasn't in a car? He wasn't in a car. He's walking. Okay. That makes more sense. Because mm-hmm. I was like, why would they stop some guy driving and ask to look at his shoes? But if he's yeah. walking, he I walking. could see where they'd be like, mm, mm, let's check this guy out. Especially if he yeah. was carrying a chunk of mm-hmm. granite. <laughs> so, all right, go ahead. Uh, believing the pattern on the man's shoes matched the prints outside the victim's home, the officer asked him to come to the police station and answer some questions. The man took off running, this Alex. Okay, I was going to say, I'd be like, um, no, like, if yeah. you would have said, he was like, sure, why not? Sure, He's let's like, do this. Hold my granite. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Slowed him down. Uh, (laughs) So he ran, leading officers on a 30-minute chase into Clax Canyon. Excuse me, Clax. 30 minutes of running? I'm exhausted. This dude must be in great shape. This canyon is a winding, rocky area cutting north from the old part of town. According to documents, officers found Ewing hiding beneath a bush. (laughs) He got tired. He's like, this bush will hide me. This is bullshit. I got to take a breather. (laughs) Under a bush. Maybe he was looking for another slab of granite. I'm picturing like when little kids try to hide and play like hide and seek. You could totally see their feet. (laughs) (laughs) He's like sitting. Right. (laughs) So they picked him up and questioned him. He claimed he'd hitchhiked to Arizona from Colorado, riding into town on a Coors truck driven by a man who went by the handle Polecat on the CB radio. (laughs) (laughs) So random. Polecat. Arizona prosecutors charged Ewing with attempted murder in the attack of the man with a granite slab. Right, okay. Kingman officials sent Ewing to a Washington County jail in Utah to await trial as part of an interstate contract because of jail overcrowding in Kingman, Arizona. So he Thank you. I was like, one. we got Colorado, we got Arizona. Why is he in Utah? Dude I get it is now. everywhere. Okay. Okay. So on August 9th of 1984, Ewing was among about a dozen prisoners being returned to Kingman for court hearings. The two deputies transporting the prisoners stopped at a gas station in Henderson, Arizona, to give the inmates a bathroom break. The inmates had to be uncuffed and unshackled, and after they were, Ewing bolted. Saw that coming. Come on. He ran to a nearby Kmart where he apparently ditched his orange jail jumpsuit and fled wearing a pair of red shorts and tennis shoes. (laughs) It's a good look. It's hot. He sounds like he was in pretty good shape, so yeah. Yeah, right? That night... The same night he escaped, wielding an axe handle, 
Just the handle. Just the handle? Yep. He entered the unlocked home of Christopher and Nancy Berry. He chased Nancy, who ran screaming into the bedroom she shared with her husband. Upon entering the bedroom, Ewing began pummeling Christopher with the axe handle. He went on to continually beat the man's wife, Nancy, as she attempted to shield her husband from the blows of the axe handle while simultaneously on the phone with 911. Damn, that's impressive. Yeah, she was... Ewing would not stop hitting her the entire time, and eventually Nancy realized that she'd have to play dead in order to get him to stop. Wow. I know, smart woman. So she did, and then the man was gone, disappearing into the desert behind their home. This dude, man, he gets so many chances to get away. It's insane. You know, I I would have thought he would have gone into hiding for a while, but no, no. (laughs) He was on it, like, right away. Damn. Yeah, he's got something wrong. I don't know. Quote, he was long-term affected. Nancy Berry said of her husband, who died of cancer in 2011, he lost his sense of smell. Quote, his jaw was out of alignment, so his bite was all messed up. He couldn't taste food anymore. His eye was kind of set back in his head and then scarring, she said. She had suffered fractures to both hands. She tried to cover her head to to fend off blows from the axe handle, and she also had a head, head injury that required surgery afterwards. So, like, he's, like, maiming these people for life, you know? God. The best clue this the sick. I know this dude is something. Oh, he's the, that's why I was saying he's like the most horrifying freaking killer attacker yeah. I could ever imagine cuz he just has no rhyme or reason. He's just doing no, it. Yeah. Yeah. The best clue responding officers had according to documents were footprints in the dirt outside. This dude leaves footprints everywhere. It's <laughs> so everywhere. Bad footprints. He is so oh footprinty. <laughs> Does he like walk really heavy? Like, why is he <laughs> He's a stomper? Really... <laughs> He's a stomper. <laughs> oh, Alex Ewing, who was only 23 at the time. <gasps> I know. Get out. 23. Well, he's in such good shape. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he's got youth. Shit, when I was 23, I probably could have run. Probably, for yeah. that long. Maybe. I, don't, I didn't run ever, but I, yeah, maybe. maybe I could have. <laughs> He at least, yeah, he's got youth behind him. He was arrested two days later by, get this, I seem to find cases like this too. He was discovered by park rangers at Lake Mead. What? Park rangers. <laughs> I have this thing for park rangers that the arrest The police people. can't get it done, but man, like <laughs> These park fish rangers. and wildlife and park rangers and shit, uh, they, they are, are on yeah, it. They're like, we we wrestle bears. This is nothing. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, when rangers arrived, Ewing ran. He's so good at getting away, usually. You know, he's like, I'm I out. Picturing, run, Forrest, run. <laughs> <laughs> and he, run. And he Alex. ran until he just Couldn't was done. Anymore. <laughs> until he could hit a bush. Right. Uh, the ranger chased him all over a small rise and ultimately cornered him against the water's edge. And there he ordered Ewing down to the ground twice. Um, quote, he doesn't do anything, Meyer, the park ranger said. So the third time I yell out, you're not hearing me, I'll shoot you. Ewing surrendered. <laughs> like, no, dude, I'm not fucking with you. You Say will die. Say my name, bitch. <laughs> Ooh, for this offense, he was given 110 years. Whoa. Yes. And he's been fighting extradition to Colorado to face charges for the additional rapes and murders in Colorado. So. Oh, my gosh. So he hasn't even. Hasn't even been, been tried for that. Ewing had been behind bars in Nevada since the summer of 1984. After the DNA match was made to the Colorado cases, 
Ewing told investigators in two separate interviews that he did live in the Denver area in 1984 and he worked construction jobs. <gasps> Free hammers. <laughs> Free hammers. <laughs> so many tools. <gasps> Did he ever install countertops? <laughs> <laughs> he loved doing counters. Brought his and... own granite. <laughs> Sorry. During the interview, Ewing was shown a picture of Patricia, the one that, that was posed. Oh, yes. At the murder Grandma. scene. Yes. And it was a picture of the murder scene. He apparently jumped back in his chair and stared at it, shocked. Because he was um, trying to pretend like he'd never seen it before and maybe overkill. I don't know. I'm it, wondering, like... I don't know. The thought that came to me was like, maybe he kind of thought he dreamed it or something, you know, and was like, oh, yeah. shocked to see it in real. I don't know. Yeah. Or after so much time, he yeah, thought. That could be because it had been, yeah, like 20 years or so. When confronted with oh. the DNA evidence, Ewing appeared shocked and said that it had to be a mistake. Couldn't give any excuse as to why it would be. Or why his DNA would have been at the murders. Maybe time made him forget. I don't know. Mm. Vanessa, the little three-year-old toddler, the sole mm. survivor of her family, fortunately remembers very little about it. Um, now right. she's 40. She is Whoa. physically scarred. Um, oh, this is sad. After the attack, she was in a coma and her jaw was wired shut. Tubes had to be run down through her nose and down her throat to feed her. She has a metal plate in her forehead, has endured multiple operations in physical therapy and she suffered from anger issues growing up <laughs> right this is the worst part this is, freaking kids are the worst she was made fun of in school because her parents were killed she How said is it something to be made fun of i know these little shits i want to go <laughs> spank them all okay she said quote i was made fun of because the hammer man or whatever you want to call it was going to come to my house and hurt everybody when I had slumber parties and stuff. <gasps> I know. These Get kids the are awful. Out. So kids saw her parents kill her as a boogeyman who would attack and kill them if they played with her or went to her home. Oh my God. As, as though she hadn't gone through enough. I know. This poor baby. Good God. I know. All right. Although the Colorado legislator outlawed the death penalty earlier this year, the new law did not apply to cases filed before the measure took effect on July 1st of this year. Oh. Ewing, I know, so this is still going on. Ewing was formally charged in early March, so right as COVID hit, after he exhausted appeals of an order that he'd be extradited from Nevada to Colorado. He's due back in court February 23rd for a hearing in the Bennett case. Um, his next hearing in the Patricia case is scheduled for December 10th. That's like coming up in a couple of weeks. Yes. So we'll have to see if there's more developments and I can mm -hmm. update. And that is the story of the hammer killer. That is oh it. Oh my God. It's messed up, right? That guy is messed up. So I checked on Anchor and it tells us where our audience is. And we have quite a few people from outside of the US. That is so cool. I love it. Awesome? Worldwide. We're worldwide, baby. For those of you who are listening to us from out of the U.S., consider Patreon. becoming a fan, a Patreon fan on Patreon, patreon.com slash ODFM podcast, because on there we have mini sods that you can listen to. And several of our mini sods are from other countries because yes. they are some twisted, weird, <laughs> messed up stories that are awesome. I think it's we've got so one. True. We got France, we got Spain, yep. we got Australia. Yep. We and we'll just keep more. going. Yeah. So 
Yeah. And even if you're not, even if you're from the U.S., if you're interested in hearing some lesser known stories that are not from around here. Yeah. Check it out. Consider consider becoming a a Patreon subscriber so you can unlock minisodes. It's pretty fun. Okay. Thanks for listening to another episode. Stay odd. Of ODFM? Yes. Of ODFM. Stay odd. Stay odd, which is obsessed dark humor detectives. Yeah. Yeah. Stay odd. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is anyone really going to want to be one of us? I mean. No, but that's okay. We're kind of (laughs) weird. I'm told that's a good thing these days. Are you? Oh. Well, that's what I tell my kids anyway. Sources for this episode are coldcasewriter.com, cpr.org, the Denver Post, genwide, pod, nineus.com. To see images from this story, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ODFM Podcast or on our website at odfmpodcast.com, where you'll also find a link to our merch store, where you can get awesome stuff like t-shirts, mugs, stickers, and more. And if the weekly podcast just isn't enough to fill your ODFM cup full, join our fan club on Patreon for more content like minisodes, bloopers, and discounts at our merch store. That site is patreon.com slash podcast. And if you do love our bloopers and need more than we naturally do, which is a lot, buy us a glass of wine at buymeacoffee.com slash ODFM podcast. Thanks for listening to another episode of ODFM, hosted by Kelly DeVries and Jenna Swanson. Production and editing by Kelly DeVries. Theme music by Eric Swanson. ODFM is a satirical true crime podcast for entertainment purposes only. The stories you hear are serious and true. The comments and opinions are not. We apologize if any of our content is harmful or disrespectful. 